We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Limaeus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm not acquainted with you yet, if we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we just want to say that uh, we're so glad you're here. We want to welcome you. um, And we pray and we hope that your first encounter with Emmaus, your first experience with us would be a blessing and an encouragement for you and would point you to Jesus Christ. Uh, We will be in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. You guys... This is our second to last sermon in the book of Acts. We're going to be in the second to last chapter, and then in a couple weeks, Pastor Patrick will preach on chapter 28. But this morning, we are in chapter 27. The author Sebastian Younger began his book, The Perfect Storm, with a story about something that occurred among a group of fishermen Back in 1896, according to Younger, the story goes something like this. He writes, One midwinter day off the coast of Massachusetts, the crew of a mackerel schooner spotted a bottle with a note in it. The schooner was on the George's Bank, one of the most dangerous fishing grounds in the world. And a bottle with a note in it was a dire sign indeed. A deckhand scooped it out of the water. The seagrass was stripped away, and the captain uncorked the bottle and turned to his assembled crew to read from a scrap of paper. This is what it said. On George's bank with our cable gone, our rudder gone and leaking, two men have been swept away, And all hands have been given up as our cable is gone and our rudder is gone. The one that picks this up, let it be known. God have mercy on us. The note was from the Falcon, a boat that had set sail from Gloucester the year before. She hadn't been heard from since. A boat that parts her cable off George's bank careens helplessly along until she fetches up in some shallow water and gets pounded to pieces by the surf. For the falcon, this was the end, and everyone on the boat would have known it. How do men act on a sinking ship? Do they hold each other? Do they pass around the whiskey? Do they cry? This man wrote... He put down on a scrap of paper the last moments of 20 men in this world. Then he corked the bottle and threw it overboard. I think we could all agree that that's a harrowing story. But I don't share it for that reason. I don't share it for some sort of emotional effect. No, I share this story for only one reason. I share it because... It contains a question. It's a question that's relevant to the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. And in case you missed that question, let me repeat it. How do men act 
on a sinking ship? That's the question that this story brings to mind for Sebastian Younger as he tells it. And I want you to keep that question in mind as well as we look at Acts chapter 27. How do men act on a sinking ship? Let's find out. Begin reading with me. Acts 27 verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, Because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So as we begin this chapter, Acts chapter 27, I want you to keep just a couple of things in mind. There's a lot going on in these verses. There's a lot that could be said, but let me just point out a couple things to you very simply. The first thing I want to point out has to do with what has led Paul to this point. I don't know if you remember it or not, but back in chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to to Paul in the middle of the night, and Jesus tells him, just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So for Paul... That's his mission. It's the thing that he has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus to do. Paul is to get to Rome. Really, that's the purpose of Paul's imprisonment at this time. Which brings me to the second thing I want to point out. I want to point out to you that Paul is still a prisoner here. Look at verse 1. It says that in order to set sail for Italy, Paul was delivered with some other prisoners 
to a centurion named Julius. Remember, Paul has been in the custody of Rome since his visit to Jerusalem in chapter 21, where he was arrested. But the interesting thing about this is that Paul is no ordinary prisoner. He hasn't committed any crimes. None of his accusers have brought any credible charges against him. So Paul, in a very real sense, is basically volunteering for imprisonment at this point. This is because Paul views his imprisonment not as a setback, not as a problem, but as an opportunity. For Paul, this is a missional strategy. Paul wants to reach the people of Rome for Christ, and that includes those who reside in Rome's halls of power. We've seen this unfolding for the last several chapters of the book of Acts. We've seen Paul testifying before kings and magistrates. We've seen him defending his ministry. We've seen him bearing witness that, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. And if you remember, in chapter 9, verse 15 of the book of Acts, right after Paul is converted, we're told that this is exactly what Paul was going to do. He was going to carry the name of Jesus, not only before the people of Israel, but also before the Gentiles and before kings. This is the reason Paul takes it upon himself to be an inmate in Roman custody. And it actually serves to explain some of the shall we say, peculiar things that happen in this passage. There are things in this story that just don't happen with a normal prisoner. For one thing, Paul gets a personal day. Look at verse 3. It says, They sailed to Sidon, and in Sidon, Julius shows Paul the kindness of allowing him to leave and go see his friends and be cared for. Now, something tells me that that's not a normal arrangement between a Roman centurion and one of his prisoners, right? But this just goes to show how different Paul was. His motivation for being on this ship is obvious to everyone, including Julius. And so Julius knows, hey, this guy wants to be here. And so he's not going to try to escape. Another strange thing we see is the freedom with which Paul speaks his mind. In verse 6, Julius arranges for he and the prisoners to, to come on board a commercial ship. And this ship was apparently bringing goods from Egypt or Alexandria in Egypt to Italy. But the timing of this shipment is problematic. Because look at verse 9. It tells us that the ship's voyage had become dangerous because of the fast was already over. This is a detail that's meant to clue us in to what time of year this probably was. The fast that verse 9 mentions most likely refers to the Day of Atonement, which on our calendars appears sometime in September or October. The reason this time frame is significant is because this was a notorious bad, notoriously bad time for a sea voyage. Somewhere between mid-September to mid-November, it was a good idea to avoid being out on the water because at that time of year, the likelihood of encountering severe storms at sea was exponentially higher. 
in verse 8. The ship arrives at Fair Havens, which for whatever reason, the text doesn't tell us, but for whatever reason, this was a less than ideal place for the ship to spend the winter. What the text is clear about, however, is that a decision needs to be made. Should the ship remain at the harbor in Fair Havens, or should they go on to Crete? And Paul, even though he's a prisoner, he doesn't hesitate to weigh in. Look at verse 10. Paul says, if we leave Fair Havens, if we set sail from here, I fear that it will be met with much loss and disaster. It'll even be a risk to our own lives. This is something Paul knows from experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 Paul says, three times I've been shipwrecked and I've spent an entire day and an entire night adrift at sea. Paul is well aware of the risks involved here. He knows what it's like to be at sea and he knows what it's like to have to contend with the forces of nature in that environment. But not only is Paul speaking from experience, I think there's more than that here. I'm convinced that Paul, in a very real way, is also speaking prophetically. Verse 10 is setting up Paul to be God's representative on that ship. God's representative sent to speak into the situation that they found themselves in. Pastor Patrick, in his commentary on Acts, refers to Paul here as the seafaring prophet. Paul is a seafaring prophet, which makes sense because throughout the scriptures, one of the main jobs of a prophet was to warn people about coming disaster. We see this in figures like Jeremiah and Amos. God would speak his severe warnings through these men. And in a very real sense, that's what we see Paul doing here. He's God's prophetic representative on that ship. God is speaking through Paul to tell Julius, to tell the pilot of the ship, to tell the owner of the ship that they will only be met with disaster if they depart from Fair Havens. And yet, despite Paul's experience, despite his prophetic representation and the warning that he issues, he is unable to convince them to stay. Verse 11 is a very sobering verse because it shows how God was effectively ignored in this situation because his representative was ignored. Look at it. It says, Julius paid more attention to the pilot of the ship and the owner of the ship than he did to what Paul was saying. God was speaking through Paul. He was telling these men through Paul that if they depart, they would be met with destruction, but they didn't listen. Instead, they disregarded God's warning to their own peril. Let's see what happens next. Begin reading with me in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, 
We gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Paul's saying, I told you so. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all about 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So things happen, or they begin to happen, just as Paul had warned. Now, at first, it seems like everything's going to be okay, right? The ship is coasting along. There's a gentle breeze. It's going really well. They even get really close to Crete. In verse 13, it's looking like Paul was going to be wrong about the entire thing. But at the very last second, suddenly a storm blows in and it knocks them way off course. The ship is helpless against the wind. The clouds gather so that the sun and the stars in the sky vanish entirely, which made navigation impossible. They're now lost. 
The waves of the sea beat against the ship so mercilessly that everyone on board gives up all hope of being saved. This is a dire situation. And yet, it is in this apparently hopeless, dire situation that the God of salvation shows up and he speaks. This morning, I want to point out three things to you about this. Think of these as three realities that are revealed in the storm. Three realities that are revealed in the storm. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that the storms of life, you know, those times of of chaos and confusion and crisis, those times don't cause nearly as much as they reveal. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that it's easy to assume that the reason I'm anxious or doubting or angry with God is because he sent this storm into my life. We want to blame the storm for our problems and we want to blame God for not preventing the storm that has caused our problems. But it's important to realize that the storm did not cause that anxiety or that doubt or that anger toward God. No, the storm only revealed that those things were already there inside of me waiting to be brought out. But the storms of life not only reveal the truth about us, they also have a way of revealing what's true about God. This is one way he uses storms for our good so that he can reveal himself, so that he can show us who he is. This is what happened in the life of the prophet Jonah. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you may have noticed as we've been reading that there are some similarities between Jonah and Paul in Acts 27. Both Jonah and Paul are seafaring prophets who get caught in a storm. And as the sea threatens to overtake them, both Jonah and Paul are brought to the point of confessing the word of salvation. That's exactly what happens in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. From the belly of the great fish, Jonah confesses that salvation belongs to the Lord. And in many ways, that's what we see here in Acts 27 as well. In fact, the Greek word for salvation shows up seven times in this story. Which actually brings me to the first reality that's revealed in the storm. The first reality is that when the word of salvation penetrates our hearts, faith will triumph over fear. When the word of salvation penetrates our hearts, faith will triumph over fear. This is what we see in verses 24 and 25. In these verses, Paul is speaking to the men who are on the ship with him. And he tells them that an angel came to him, visited him in the middle of the night. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Paul. Now I would imagine that the reason the angel says this is because it's what Paul needed to hear. With the tempest raging all around him, maybe, just maybe, Paul was starting to question things. Or maybe it was a little worse than that. Maybe fear had begun to seize Paul's heart. Because think about it, he was in a situation that was virtually hopeless. 
As far as the eye could see, there was only chaos and darkness and death. So the prisoner who has been defending himself before kings and high officials now needs someone to defend him against the forces of nature. Which is why in that moment, Paul, when he was on the brink of despair, he is told, do not be afraid. The angel tells him, you will stand before Caesar. That's God's way of saying, hey, don't worry. I'm going to defend you from the storm. I'm the sovereign one. I will be your defense. I've got this, Paul. Here Paul is being reminded of what he already knew. That the Lord has a purpose for him. And Paul is being assured that it's the Lord's purpose that will prevail. Nothing can stop it. Not even the storm. But Paul not only receives this assurance for himself, he also receives it for every man on board that ship with him. The angel tells him, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Just notice that language. That the salvation of these men is something that God must grant. Right? Which means that these men will not survive the storm by their own willpower. They won't survive by their own nautical skill or expertise. No, they will be brought through the storm only by the grace of the God to whom Paul belongs, the God that he worships as the maker of the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. Not one of these men will be lost. And it's for one reason and one reason only. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord to whom salvation belongs has made them a promise. It's at this very point that something begins to shift inside of Paul. His heart, though it once may have been seized by fear, is now taking hold of the promise of God. Or it might be better to say that the promise of God has gotten a hold of Paul. And he receives in this moment of crisis the gift of unshakable faith. Paul has been lifted out of his despair to have confidence that when God promises something, it's as good as done. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says to those on the ship with him, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God. That it will be exactly as I have been told. As a prophet in their midst. Paul delivers to them the promise of their salvation. But not everyone believes this promise. It becomes quite apparent, quite clear. That there are those on the ship who do not take heart. Which demonstrates the second reality that we see in this text. Or in the storm. That unbelief results in a failure of nerve. That's the second reality. Unbelief results in a failure of nerve. Now that the storm has raged on for two whole weeks, the ship has been knocked so far off its course that Paul and those with him, they have no idea where they are. They know nothing of their location. But they do know this. Verse 25. They will run aground on some island. And sure enough, they find in in verse 28 that they're quickly nearing land. 
But this presents its own set of problems. In addition to contending with the storm, these sailors must now keep the ship from crashing into the rocks of this island. And unfortunately, this proved to be the last straw for these sailors. Two weeks in the most dire conditions, and now the pressure of an impending shipwreck is too much for them. It's too much. Yes, they had heard the promise of their salvation, but they could not see past their present circumstances. And so they did not lay hold of the salvation that had been pledged to them. In other words, these sailors did not believe. In contrast with Paul, they didn't have faith. They didn't have faith to trust that salvation belongs to the Lord who had spoken. And this results in their failure of nerve. Instead of staying with the ship and getting everyone on board to safety, the sailors chose to instead pursue a project of self-salvation. Notice verse 30. The sailors sought to escape from the ship. They were going to lower the ship's boat and sneak out while no one was looking. But little did they know that someone was looking. Paul was watching the whole thing. Verses 31 and 32, Paul says to Julius and the soldiers, hey, the sailors are planning to abandon ship, and if they do, you can't be saved. So what do the soldiers do? They cut the ropes, and they let the, the, the ship's boat fall into the water and drift off in the storm. No one can escape. This moment reminds us that unbelief is revealed when courage is most needed. When the situation becomes too much, the faithless always resort to projects of self-salvation. When the pressure is more than they can handle, they lose their nerve. That's what we see in these sailors. The moment called for valor, but they failed to meet the moment. They did not rise to the occasion. Every man on board the ship needed those sailors to do the job that they signed up to do. But instead, they tried to bail. They tried to abandon their post. And now, they have been exposed as cowards. To be perfectly blunt, these men, these sailors, are failures. And everyone on board now knows it. Now, it may sound like I'm being a little harsh there. Maybe I'm being too hard on these Poor sailors, they've been through it after all. But I say these things just to set up the third reality that's revealed in the storm. The third reality is that the God of salvation breaks bread with failures. He breaks bread with failures. Notice how after their attempted escape, the sailors are not condemned. Paul does not berate them. For their failure of nerve. He doesn't say, shame on you guys. You've really done it now. No, no, not at all. Instead, Paul is the expression of the reality that the God of salvation will draw near to feed these sailors. Through Paul's presence as God's prophetic representative, God sets a table in the midst of the storm and he invites failures to come and be nourished and receive strength. In verse 34, God, Paul tells them, take some food, be strengthened. 
He reminds them, remember what I said, not a single solitary hair will perish from the head of any one of you. Now think for a second about who Paul is saying this to. Think about who these men are. Right? These are Roman soldiers, Roman killing machines. Right? And they have, they have spent this entire story ignoring God's prophetic wisdom. These are also hardened criminals who are on their way to be prosecuted in Rome. They don't deserve to be free, to live amongst society. These are also grubby sailors who have been exposed as cowards. No one would look at this group of men and, and, and say to themselves, wow, what a wholesome bunch. No, we would look at these men and we would say, the reason you're in this mess is because of your choices. You've disregarded God. You've spent your entire life of unbelief. If there's a disaster here, it's a disaster of your own making. That's what I want to say to these guys as I read this text. But then the Spirit moves in to convict me of something. These guys and me, we're not so different. I'm not so different from them. Neither are you. We've all played the coward, have we not? Can you not point to a moment in your life that you're ashamed of? A moment where you knew God was speaking to you and you ignored Him. A moment where you tried to save your own skin instead of trusting the God of salvation. Does anyone else have moments like that? I know I do. When you become desperate enough to own up to your worst moments and your biggest failures, that's when God swoops in and blows up your project of self-salvation. Once you come to your senses, you'll be able to see what the gospel has been telling you all along. That God does not deal with us according to our worst moments. He does not repay us according to our sins and our failures. Friends, we need to remember that that's exactly what brings us here today. The church is a gathering of failures and sinners who have been redeemed. The only reason we're here is because the God of salvation has stooped down to break bread with the likes of us. And we gather to remind each other that Christ has saved a seat for us at his table. There's a seat for you. There's a seat for me. That's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. Matthew chapter 9 tells us that as Jesus reclined at table, many sinners came and they joined him. And when the Pharisees saw what was happening, that Jesus was hanging out with such undesirable company, they said, who does Jesus think he is? Doesn't Jesus know who these people are? I mean, these are sinners. These are, are failures. These are losers. Doesn't he know any better? And Jesus responds by saying to them, I didn't come for those who are well. Those who have it all together, they, they don't need a seat at my table. No, I came for the failures, for the sinners, for the losers. That's why Jesus shows up here in Acts 27. He's calling out in the storm, inviting this group of failures to come to the table and be fed. Verses 36 and 37 tell us that when Paul gave thanks and the bread was broken, every man on that ship took the food 
and was strengthened and encouraged for what was about to happen next. Let's see what that is. Let's read the remainder of chapter 27 together. It says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach in which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So there you have it. It's chapter 27's inevitable conclusion. It's a shipwreck. It's like an action scene in a movie where everything is on the line. I mean, Julius has to stop these centurions, these soldiers, from killing Paul and the other prisoners. And then you have men who are swimming in the waves. Right? They're casting themselves into the ocean. They're swimming to shore, praying that they make it there. Others are hanging on for dear life to whatever flotsam they can find. The ship is done for. It's going down. Which brings me back to the question I asked at the beginning of, of the sermon today. How do men act on a sinking ship? How do men act on a sinking ship? Well, I think it depends. It depends. If, if Paul teaches us anything, it's that how men act on a sinking ship depends on one thing and one thing only. It all comes down to whether they have faith to believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. This reminds me of a story in the life of John Wesley. As a young man, Wesley lived in a constant state of crippling guilt. This was because even though Wesley, you know, intellectually assented to the truth claims about Christianity, even though he propositionally believed the Bible, he knew nothing of the power and the grace that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Wesley knew all about Christianity. He just didn't know Christ. And as a result, he was racked with condemnation over his every failure. He lived in a constant state of dread at the wrath of God. And this led him to do some drastic things in order to earn favor with the Lord. One of the things he did is he crossed the Atlantic Ocean. He went from Britain to the United States in order to be a missionary to Native American tribes. And there was one point for Wesley in his travels where he was at sea and a storm blew in. This was no ordinary storm. No, the tempest was so violent, so severe that those on board began to panic. And this included Wesley. He was terrified because it felt like at any moment the ship would break up and he would meet his end in a watery grave. But in that moment, Wesley also noticed something. There had been a group of Moravian missionaries traveling on board the ship with him. 
And these Moravian missionaries were not trembling with fear. They weren't weeping in despair. They weren't crying out in a state of panic. Instead of doing any of that, these Moravians were worshiping. They were singing psalms and hymns to the God of their salvation. Wesley later recounted this. Listen to how he describes it. He says, In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks, as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Moravians calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. At 12, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day I have hitherto seen. Wesley knew that the Moravians were not afraid and their being able to rise above their fear was a matter of faith. They believed beyond what their eyes could see. They knew that there was something or someone greater to fear than the storm. And so the question I want to put to you today is do you believe? Do you believe that your salvation belongs to the Lord? This isn't a question about some abstract theological claim. No, this is about the sustaining reality of your life. It goes to the very heart of what holds you together in your hour of greatest need. When you find yourself in that hour, will you be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 18, the Lord will send from on high. He will draw me out of the waters. Church, I want you to be able to say that and mean it. I want you to believe. So I'll conclude by reminding you of two promises that will keep your faith from sinking. Two promises. Promise number one. You will never find yourself in a storm that is beyond the sovereignty of the saving God. As Christians, we believe that the God of our salvation is absolutely sovereign. The scriptures tell us that he is all powerful, which means that nothing that happens in heaven above or on the earth below lies outside of his sovereign control. And hear me, that includes our storms. We all have those moments in life, do we not? Those storms where we find ourselves in the last place we ever thought we'd be, and it's like, how did I get here? How did this happen? If we didn't know any better, we would just assume that the universe is doling out cruelty at random, and we just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But if God is absolutely sovereign, if he is indeed all-powerful, then for the Christian There is no such thing as being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There is only such a thing as being exactly where God wants you. But here's the thing. Sometimes the place he wants you is frightening. Sometimes it's 
It's overwhelming or devastating. Sometimes it's truly painful. You might even say it's excruciating. As we've seen in Acts 27, there are times when God leads you into situations that feel downright impossible. And it can be tempting to abandon hope. It can be easy to start to wonder, God, do you not see what this situation is doing to me? Or do you you just not care? If you remember, this is exactly what the disciples said to Jesus in Mark chapter 4. They were in the boat with him on the Sea of Galilee when the text says a great windstorm prevailed upon them. The waves were crashing over them. The boat was filling up with water. And what was Jesus doing? Of all things, he was taking a nap. He was having a snooze. So the disciples frantically jostle him from his sleep and they cry out, Rabbi, don't you care that we are perishing? I mean, look at the storm surrounding us. Aren't you going to do something? Or do you not care? And Jesus responds with an astounding display of his authority over the forces of nature. He demonstrates that that his sovereignty is absolute. He rebukes the wind and the waves with just a word. He says, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And the waves died down and the sea was in great calm. And the one who rebuked the winds and the waves then turned To rebuke his disciples. He said, why were you so afraid? Did you forget who was in the boat with you? Did you fail to remember what you've seen? You've seen me raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. You've seen all of this. You know that I am the all-powerful sovereign Lord whose kingdom is at hand. And yet you still cave to fear. You doubted. Friends. We could be hard on the disciples if we wanted to, but we shouldn't be. Because you and I, we need this same reminder that they did. When we are storm-tossed and afraid, we need to remember who is in the boat with us. There is no storm he cannot calm. There is no fear or no anxiety he cannot answer because nothing, absolutely nothing, lies outside of his sovereignty. And then the second promise is this. Applying the assurance of your salvation will make you immovable in every storm. Everything in your life may be up in the air right now. Maybe there were a thousand unanswered questions that were hanging over your head when you walked into this place today. But if you are in Christ, there is one thing that will never be in question. And that's your salvation. Christ spilled his blood on the cross to guarantee that your standing before the God of heaven would never be in question again. His death on your behalf and his reign from the throne of heaven have settled that question once and for all. And so there's only one question left to ask. It's the question that Paul puts to us in Romans chapter 8. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously in Christ give us all things? Paul says that this means that if you have been called according 
to the promise of God in Christ, then all things, even the storm that you find yourself in, it will all work together for your good. That's your gospel guarantee in the storm. So whatever is uncertain to you today, be certain of this, that your life is in the hands of Christ. And if it is in His sovereign wise, capable, loving hands, you can rest assured that this will work out for your eternal joy and sanctification. Why? Because your salvation from beginning to end belongs to the Lord. Church, would you pray with me? God of our salvation, we confess that there are times when we wish that you'd spare us from the storm. But we also know that through the storm, you accomplish things in us that wouldn't be accomplished otherwise. So we come to you now hoping and waiting. We come confessing with the prophet that salvation belongs to you. It belongs to you. For my brothers and sisters who are battered by the storms of life, we ask that you'd keep their faith from sinking. Would you anchor them in the storm? We pray these things in your saving name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.